0: Well, welcome back. We are going to continue a little bit more into the theology of icons this week, and it will lead us hopefully right up to talking about the icons of the apostles Peter and Paul for next week. And then Father Glenn's going to lead the class on St. Michael the Archangel. And after that, I'll follow up with one or two classes on St. Elizabeth the New Martyr. So that's our goal and we'll see how far we get tonight as well. There's a lot to do. So let's begin. Last week we talked a little bit about iconography in general, almost you know the conception of iconography. How do we think about icons? And we found that probably the best metaphor uh, for this was the icon as uh, a mirror. Some people like to explain an icon as a window through which you see uh, the subject. The problem with that is that then um, you're looking through the window and you can see the subject itself as if you can kind of grasp it and hold on to it. But a mirror, on the other hand, is something that reflects the glory of the subject. Why is that important? It kind of sounds a little bit um, uh, obtruse or to a little bit mystical or something. Well, let's take this icon of Jesus Christ as Pantocrator. If we were to say that we could look through a window and see the subject himself, uh, then we'd be able to say that the icon is in some way Jesus himself. And if that's the case, if we say that the icon is the subject uh, or uh, a window that helps us see the subject, that can Maybe not always, but it can lead to idolatry where we actually think that the icon, the physical board that it's painted on is the subject or is Jesus. Um, That sounds a little bit ridiculous to say, but this has been a a fight that has come up throughout church history many times. Rather, we wanna think of the icon as an image, a reflection of the subject. And they are the most powerful images that we have today. It's not just any image. Remember last week we started talking about how our society, our lives are just filled with images, 1,500 images a day uh, in the least. And not all of those are bad. Uh, They could be, um, you know, just distractions or advertisements or maybe true art or just graphics that you see um, on your phone or in videos or just watching a movie but even though we're inundated we need to be careful that those images are not just meaningless images they all have some meaning in them and many of them are trying to point your desires point your will to an end some like idolatry or like idols themselves point to themselves and say that this picture is the image of perfection This is true happiness. In contrast to that, icons help to settle our eyes, help to settle our minds by pointing us to true reality. And this is because icons point us to that reality which is the transfigured or resurrected reality. It's the image of humanity, um, transfigured, of divinity in all of its power but now incarnate the icons reflect the glory of the transfigured or yeah the transfigured nature after the resurrection let me use a a quote to help explain this here this is by uh, Leonid Uspensky who is a I think he's died by now, but very modern um, iconographer and also a great theologian of icons. And this is what he writes. The icon is regarded as one of the ways by means of which it is possible and necessary to strive to achieve the task set before mankind, to achieve likeness to the prototype, to embody in life, what was manifested and transmitted by God-man. With this significance, icons are placed everywhere as the revelation of the future sanctification of the world, of its coming transfiguration, as a pattern of its realization, and finally, as the promulgation of grace and the presence in the world of holy objects which sanctify. So the image of the icon is leading us to the highest reality, the truest reality, the beauty, the most beautiful reality that there is. That is God. And when he, put, he uses in his quote, he says, icons are placed everywhere as a revelation uh, that's hinting back at the, one of the quotes from the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which stated and kind of commanded uh, Christians to put icons everywhere so that in all parts of your life, whether you're walking out of your house or you're coming into church or you're going into your study, there is an icon there to help you point your life towards that reality. So as we behold that reality, as we look at an icon, we are aligning ourselves to the true reality. And thus the icon is changing us and leading us onto a path of sanctification. And that's what he means by when we say that these are holy objects which sanctify. They don't do it just by having an icon in your house and it's like there's a secret power in it you know, seeping out and making everyone really holy. That would be a little bit too easy. No, they're doing that by being attentive to the image. And through the image then, we are brought to align our reality to God's reality. So this beholding, this looking at, is what we may call or what we may know of as contemplation. But we need to be very careful here because this is not restful contemplation. This is not just sitting and looking and then walking away. We can't do that sort of contemplation. Let me give you an example from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is coming into a town, and there's this little rich man named Zacchaeus, And Zacchaeus wants to see God. He wants to see Jesus, sorry, he doesn't quite recognize him as God yet, but he wants to see Jesus. Now Zacchaeus is a wealthy, prominent man in his community. He could easily have asked people to move out of the way, people would have listened to him, and then he would have been able to meet Jesus. But Zacchaeus did not want to meet Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus on his own terms. And as a result, he ends up in a ridiculous position. He's too short to see through the crowd. And so Zacchaeus has to climb up into a tree in order to see Jesus from afar. However, his plan doesn't work. He can't just see Jesus and then have that time and then climb back down and go on his way. Jesus comes right to the tree. He names him which is incredible to think about he names him Zacchaeus come on down and let me abide with you tonight so he demands them to come into the house of Zacchaeus Jesus or the, the meeting of uh, uh, the meeting of Jesus is a confrontation it is not a Passive looking onto Jesus that we get to do as subjects, and then he's just an object. Zacchaeus heeds the call. He comes down and then he welcomes him into his house. In a like manner, we must then not, we must desire not just to see Jesus, not just to see his beauty, and then not have him come inside our lives. That is not restful contemplation. What we must do, sorry, there's the icon of Zacchaeus. (laughs) It's just ridiculous, right? And the the craziness of that icon is, I think, helping us understand that we as humans go to great lengths not to be known, especially not to be known by our creator. And so here is a great icon to help us understand how to look at icons. This is our role. We should not hide from the contemplation in front of us. Rather, we should let the icon change us. Let the reality that the icons are giving us, that are presenting in front of us, change our reality. And that's what I mean by this is not restful contemplation. One more quote by Uspensky, Uh, before we move on, he says, the icon is regarded as one of the ways, sorry, as one of the ways by means of which it is possible and necessary to strive to achieve the task set before mankind, to achieve likeness to the prototype and to embody in life what was manifested and transmitted by God-man. I think I included that on the other one. That was supposed to be split. Sorry about that. But here is the goal. That as the icon set before us a type of the prototype, and what that means is, right, this is the the reflection of the glory of Christ. The icon is the type. Christ is the prototype. As that is set before us, it is then supposed to help us become like the prototype ourselves. We are told that we are made in the image of God. And that word image in Greek, that's the same word that we're talking about. It's icon. We are supposed to become the icon of Christ. But we can only do that more and more as we understand who Christ is, aligning our reality to his reality. This also helps us understand then the words of Paul to the Corinthians that Father Glenn brought up last week. This is from 2 Corinthians at the end of the uh, third chapter. Paul writes, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so here is this Great teaching of Paul that we are moving, as we behold the Lord, we are moving into his glory. But does it happen all at once? No, it doesn't. It happens over time. As we place these images in front of our lives and in our lives in different places at different times, or we're dedicating or setting aside time to do this, little bit by little bit, we are We are the image, and we are becoming more and more the image of Christ himself. One of the greatest defenders of iconography was a man named John of Damascus. John of Damascus uh, wrote a lot of books, but one of his most famous ones is In Defense of Holy Icons, which he wrote right before the Seventh Ecumenical Council which was dealing with icons. And he has a phrase that's often quoted that seems so, uh, so extreme, but I think given what we've just said, it makes more sense. This is what he says. I have seen the human image of God and my soul is saved. He's talking about icons here. I have seen the human image of God on an icon, and my soul is saved. This is taking what we're learning from Paul here, that as we behold the Lord, we change from glory to glory of into his glory. And it's the icon that helps us to understand the power of the incarnation, that glory of the incarnation, which then leads us back to God the Father himself. Last week, we talked about this almost, you know, kind of specifically using the transfiguration icon. We learned how all of creation is being transfigured. And this is the, an image of how that is done. And that moving from glory to glory can be terrifying. It can be overpowering. But it's not destroying. It does not destroy the apostles as they stand back and overpower. They're staggering and they actually fall (laughs) in different directions. But here is a man, Jesus, who is also the second person of the Trinity. And it does not destroy his human nature. It does not diminish his divine nature. But yet they're held together unified in one person, Jesus Christ. And I want you then to step back a little bit to think about how we are talking about this. We're using icons right now to teach us even about icons, right? (laughs) Uh, We're using this icon of the transfiguration to show what Paul means about moving from glory to glory. How does the glory of the Lord How is that shared amongst Christians? How do Christians take part or participate in that glory with the icons that actually help us understand that? I'm bringing that up because icons are dogmatic. That means that icons themselves are ways of teaching, and not just ways, they are teaching themselves. Let me explain this a different way. There's this great phrase uh, in Latin, lex orandi, lex credendi, um, which is one of, I think, one of the strong suits of Anglicanism. And literally it means that the law of prayer is the law of believing. I like to translate that as how we pray is what we believe. And by prayer here, prayer means not just uh, don't think of this in like your own individual prayers, like your private prayers. Think of this as the prayer of the church, how the church prays our liturgies is what we believe. The way in which we do theology then is not just by laying out logical statements one after the other and seeing how far we go until we hit the cliffs of heresy. Uh, Sometimes I guess people do that, but that's not, Real theology. That's a little bit exaggerated. The point is that we don't just think our beliefs or our theology. We live them out. Our prayer, our liturgy, is our theology. Our music is a form of our theology, even our architecture. Uh, For example, think of this. If you purposely choose um, to worship God in a warehouse, which you can, and that's possible. Mm-hmm. That shows something, though, about what you believe about God. At the least, it, or maybe at the most, it shows that you think perhaps industrial architectural design helps your soul ascend to heaven. Or, and the minimum, that uh, phys- the physical world around you doesn't really matter. And the physical world doesn't really affect your soul. And so it doesn't matter whether you worship God in a warehouse purposely or worship in in um, a cathedral or in a church. Do you see how you worship? Even getting down to the points of where you worship shows a theology. It reveals a theology. It is a theology. So when Father Glenn, for example, and I come across a new theological situation or a new question, we often first look at our own liturgy, our own prayers, in our prayer book, to show us what we already believe and do. And from that, we move forward in order to engage a new theological problem. This really matters, then, with icons. Let me give you a historical example. At the third ecumenical council, which was at Ephesus in 431, uh, you had, uh, you, you had um, a, a bishop charged with heresy whose name was Nestorius. Now, Nestorius was coming, and um, he was claiming that Mary did not give birth to the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Word. She gave birth to a man named Jesus, and Jesus kind of grew up and then was maybe either fused with that, and there's different arguments about what Nestorius really believed, but he did not, he denied that Jesus Christ, especially at his birth, was fully God and fully man. So the Third Ecumenical Council comes together. And they uphold the Nicene Creed. That's the first thing they do. Then they condemn Nestorius. That's a good thing. And this was then, in oh, what I just said, the Christolo- Christological debate over whether Christ was fully God and man. You know, How or in what way should we distinguish between Christ's divine and human natures? The doctrinal shibboleth that's a word that means like what was the determining um, what was the determining word that either determined you were a heretic or orthodox. The determining word here was Theotokos, which is our title for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Theotokos in Greek means um, the God-bearer, and there's another phrase, Mater Theu which is actually the icon in our church of Mary, that's what her title is, Mater Theu, which means mother of God. It's the same, they mean the same thing or referring to the same matter here. After the Third Ecumenical Council, if you could not say that Mary was Theotokos, was God-bearer, or she was Mater Theu, then you were known to be uh, a heretic. This was the defining line to say in a different way. This goes back, of course, to the creed, right? In the Nicene Creed as well. Uh, But another way to teach this orthodoxy, another way to see if someone was a heretic or orthodox was to see if you could actually look at an icon of the Theotokos. John of Damascus again summarizes, this name, Theotokos, contains the whole mystery of the incarnation. That's how important this was. The other way you could put that is this icon, meaning this one, contains the whole mystery of the incarnation. This is the Theotokos Vladimir, which is one of the most famous icons in Russia actually. Supposedly it saved Russia several times. Uh, It's a really precious icon and it has a very unique, strange history. As is usual with a lot of precious icons, we have no idea who wrote it. But this icon then was also a defining dogmatic difference between orthodoxy and heresy. Could you have this icon in your church? Then, of course, you are orthodox. If you denied this, if you couldn't have in your church, you were excommunicated because of the heresy. If we take a look at Jonathan Edwards' version of the Theotokos, there's many different versions of Theotokos. Uh, Vladimir is just one, and there's many people who write Vladimir Theotokos, I forget which one, this one is exactly, it's modeled very closely to the Vladimir one though, um, which is a wonderful version of this because you can see Christ's hand as a child kind of tenderly going up to his mother's chin as a real baby would do, right? And so you can see in this icon, this incredible human side of Jesus, And yet, if you look at his halo, and I'm not really sure that you can actually see this this up close, but if you see in this halo, he'll have the Greek letters for Hall on which is the Greek for the being, the one. It's the Greek for Yahweh, for the eternal God. And so here you have the baby, fully God, fully man. And in fact, the writer of this icon is then even going further and saying not only is he fully man, he acts like a little baby. He caresses his mother's chin. And yet he is fully God, the second person of the Trinity. So this became the uh, the defining icon of orthodoxy. And what I want you to understand from this is that The icon, then, is just as dogmatic, is is just as defining and and teaching us as the creed is, or as the the councils that come out, the, the statements that come out from these ecumenical councils. Icons are dogmatic in that way, in that they are the words of the creed, the words of the scripture, the words of the councils in image, And we see that historically, as we went through the Third Ecumenical Council, that it was not only the term Theotokos that became the defining limit, it was also the icon itself became the defining limit between orthodoxy and heresy. So to wrap that up, and why I think this is important, (laughs) is I hope it starts showing That icons are not just an addition. Icons cannot just be um, an aesthetic addition to a church. They are part, they are part of the core of the church. They are part of the very dogma and teaching of the traditions of the church. However, then there can be some good questions that be, to be brought up. If icons are that, then where have they been <laughs> in our Anglican tradition? Where are they? Sarah James asked this question, sent to me a few weeks ago after the first one, which was basically the same sort of thing. I understand that the icons are very important, but in the Orthodox tradition, in the Eastern church, iconography is part of their liturgy It is written into their prayers. uh, As they walk into a church, they kiss icons that are there. It's much more part of the living liturgy of the church. And as I have said earlier, our theology is in our liturgy. And so there are some hard questions that we have to face then as Anglicans. Uh, Here are some of them. Some people might claim that there's not a clear tradition of iconography in Anglicanism. So why start now or why do it, etc. Others might bring up the point that in the 39 articles, uh, article, especially article 22, which is on purgatory, but then the writers just go crazy and start denouncing everything they want. It says the Romish, um, the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardons, worshipping and adoration, as well of images as of relics, And also invocation of the saints is a fond thing, vainly invented and grounded upon no warrant of scripture, but rather repugnant to the word of God. Whoa. All right. So maybe we should burn these things. You know, uh, that's off. I mean, that sounds like we definitely can't have them. And then the final objection is that I would see is that our liturgy does not really actually seem to name the saints very often or to really include the veneration of images within the liturgy. And if I've so defended that the liturgy is the basis of this, then really I've defended an emptiness of iconography. So let me go through each of these kind of briefly, because I think there are some good answers to these as we face uh, some of these harder questions. Not a clear tradition. Well, we believe that our church all saints, Anglican, and then the diocese that we're connected with and the bishops who we are under is connected to the great Catholic Church of all time. So we do not say that our church, of course, started at the Reformation, right? We claim that our church, the Anglican tradition, is part of the tradition of the church that goes back to Pentecost, We are the church of the first millennium as well. And Anglicanism has come from that. It is an outworking of that and a cultural expression of that. Anglicans also have always kept up a tradition of iconographic imagery. It is true that we have not uh, always kept up the Eastern way of iconography, but our architecture, our music for sure are The way in which our, our calendar year is composed, all of these are iconographic, sacramental. So even though Anglicanism in the West has not had an explicit uh, tradition of having the type of icons like Russia does, we do have actually a rich tradition of iconography in a more general sense. And because we are part of the church universal, we are part of the first millennium church as well. We are joined to those brothers and sisters in the East. And in fact, there's been a long tradition of a close relationship between Anglicanism and the Orthodox. Well, what about the 39 articles though? Doesn't that seem to just discount anything? Well, the 39 articles need to be read within a historical context that they were written. And they also need to be treated as a historical document, not a binding canonical dogma. It is not on the same level as an ecumenical council, for instance. There were Roman abuses at that time, There were specific Roman abuses having to do with images, especially sculptures. Uh, There was a famous sculpture of Mary in a church that uh, I think it was if you prayed in front of her for seven times, uh, you were healed of any illness that you had. Yeah, that's magic thinking. That's idolatry. That's not good. That needs to be um, changed and corrected. But this article, even taken, taken very literally, does not dic- discount any use of image.